0: All right, so uh, today's show, um, there's two topics here. Well, actually three I want to talk about. Uh, We've talked about them uh, before in prior shows, but um, some further developments uh, deserve a follow-up. All right, so uh, let's talk about uh, the union strike scene here. Uh, the UAW, but also the writers' strike and the actors' strike. <clears throat> uh, some important developments in all three, and then I want to spend some time talking about uh, artificial intelligence, which is related, uh, in particular, to the later, latter two uh, strikes here, uh, actors and uh, and writers, uh, and in general, uh, and then thirdly. Um, I want to talk about uh, Jimmy Carter, whose uh, 99th birthday is tomorrow, Saturday, Uh, and what is his legacy? You know, uh, Carter has uh, been in hospice care for quite some time here, and you know he may um, leave the scene, uh, you know, at any time, and we're going to get a big flood of. Of uh, hype uh, about, uh, oh, his contributions, his legacy. Well, I want to talk about his legacy. It's important. And I'm not talking about building homes for the poor. Okay. So we'll jump into that topic later in the show. But let's start uh, talking about um, the UAW strike here. Uh, We've just heard that the UAW. is going to expand its strike from uh, a previously announced expansion several days ago to 38 plants in the U.S. to 43. You know, just to recap, uh, the UAW started off the strike on the 15th of September, uh, walking out at really only at three plants, one each at the three companies which you know is not really a strike in my opinion but the strategy was called stand up oh you know and that was a play on sit down strikes in the 30s that formed the union those were real strikes uh, you know walking out of three plants eh, you know that's that's just a token Token kind of action. But, you know, the argument was, well, it's strategic. We're going to up the ante every week here if the companies don't come to the table here and expand the strike, which is what the UAW is doing, uh, expanding it to 38, as it said uh, prior, and now 43 over the weekend. Okay, so uh, the whole idea is we're going to shut down uh, the key uh, parts uh, creating uh, plants uh, and that will cause the other plants to um, lay workers off. And if you lay them off, they get unemployment, uh, and then you don't have to pay them strike pay, right? Um, so they're husbanding their uh, the UA, UAW their strike pay. You know their fund is only like 850 million, and that doesn't go very far when you have 146 thousand workers if they all went on strike. So, you know, you strike uh, just three plants, 13,000. But now they're expanding it. Well, in my opinion, they lost two weeks. You know, my experience in strikes, and I've been in them and I've coordinated strikes, uh, is that, you know, if you're going to walk out, hit them hard, right, from the get-go. Don't pussyfoot around, you know, because uh, walking out of three plants is not going to Put pressure on the company. You know, they're not going to say, their negotiations negotiating. They're not going to say, oh, oh, we better come to the table and concede because they might expand it. No. In some ways, you know, they kind of like to laugh at the whole strategy, I think. Oh, three plants. Ha ha. You know, well, maybe they'll get six next week and nine a week after, and that won't hurt us at all. Well, that's just my experience and my view. I, I guess I fall in the camp that the UAW has wasted some precious time here, uh, and now it looks like they're going to really strike Ford and GM. Not Stellantis, formerly Chrysler. Uh, they're just hanging on financially. You know, if you uh, if you put them as the target, then uh, you know you probably drive them out of business. So. I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Uh, so this, the expansion is going to be Ford and and GM, and that's coming uh, this weekend, right? Now, as I've been saying on uh, Twitter, I've been following the the that this strike daily and commenting on on it. And by the way, if you want to follow my day to day remarks, not weekly radio remarks, uh, just follow me on Twitter uh, at uh, DRJackRasmus. Okay. As I've been saying on Twitter, uh, there's a light at the end of this tunnel, this strike, and that's the uh, what's happened to the auto workers in Canada. Uh, Ford just settled with the auto workers in Canada. And uh, I don't know how many, I think five or six thousand at a plant up there. Uh, And uh, we don't know the full terms of that agreement because it hasn't been voted on and publicized. But, you know, these things leak out a little bit here and there. And it looks like uh, Ford has agreed to a 25 percent pay package, 25 percent, you know, to come back to the UAW, U.S. strike uh, at the walkout. uh, The union was at 36 percent package. And uh, the companies are at 20. Uh, so this settlement in Canada, you know, if this report is correct, 25 uh, percent is uh, Ford's willing to agree to more. Okay uh, I think uh, that's the start point when they sit down again with the union. The union's going to say, well, you know, if you can afford to give 25 percent up Canada, you can get 25 percent here. Right, and we will go from there. I've always said uh, publicly that I think the settlement will be around 30% total package. Well, I think it's likely that they'll get to 30%, uh, and it will be 25% pay, and the other 5% will be in cost of living adjustment. In other words, the COLA, as it's called, uh, was taken out of uh, the contract, I think it was either 2009 or 2019, I'm not sure, a uh, COLA is very important because it means that uh, you not only get your annual wages, uh, whatever is agreed to, 25%, whatever, uh, but you also get a cost of living adjustment on top of that, a COLA. Uh, so the COLA was restored up in Canada. So I think that they're going to restore it here they won't restore it right away. Uh, they'll backload it, you know, to the third, fourth year, whatever, and that saves the company money. But they'll they'll get a restoration of it, and also uh, the company can claim, uh, you know, they're offering thirty percent, whatever, by um, extending uh, uh, the agreement. Uh, the union wants a four-year agreement. The company's four and a half. They'll they'll agree to a five-year agreement. Uh, and the company will say, well, we're paying more wages over the uh, five years instead of four years, and now be part of the wage package, et cetera. So, you know, you can play with, with the terms and conditions pretty easily here uh, to um, make it look like it's more than, than it's uh, actually uh, is. Right? I think they'll reach a deal before Thanksgiving. As I said, I think it'll be at or close to 30% based on uh, the terms I've talked about. Uh, <clears throat> the key question, though, is uh, this two-tier problem. Two-tier, uh, in other words, two-tier means uh, uh, new workers are on a different wage schedule at a lower pay and pr- and longer progression to reach the top uh, than uh, workers who have more seniority have been there under previous contracts. Um, and uh, they have a higher wage and a shorter wage progression. Uh, the companies save an awful lot of money with the two-tier arrangement because when older workers at the tier one retire, they hire uh, younger workers at tier two at a lower pay and longer to get to, to the top in a progression. Progression means you know every six months you get a small bump in your in your wage wage rate, right? Uh, and then when you uh, uh, have a contract, all the progressions are adjusted uh, uh, by uh, you know whatever the rate the wage increase was in Canada. I understand that uh, the uh, the company lured the the workers to a settlement by uh, front loading 10% of the 25% package. That's a tactic that companies often use at the last moment. Here they give a A lump sum payment, you know, a a ratification bonus, uh, they call it, or a lump sum annual bonus, uh, you know. A a lump sum pay increase uh, is also a cheaper solution for the company uh, because um, it doesn't build uh, the, the structured wage rates. You know, it's outside the wage rates. Uh, and workers uh, kind of fall for it because, uh, you know, especially if they're out on strike or, you know, they've had a hard time keeping up with inflation, getting a nice uh, a big bump here, uh, you know, to buy that car they need or to go uh, on the holidays and whatever. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big attraction. And the companies have, uh, uh, have pra- fallen into this practice of lump sum payments, usually a ratification bonus. You know, if you got it into your wage rate, uh, any other increase over the years would raise the wage rate. But lump sum keeps the wage rate uh, and the wage structure low than otherwise. Okay, so um, two-tier companies save a lot of money. And they don't tell you uh, that— you know, how much of a trend of uh, older retirees and newer coming in on the two tier amounts to actually taking back what their initial total package was. So if they agree to a 30% package and uh, uh, they keep the two tier the way it is, well, the companies are going to take back some of that 30%. Maybe it'll be 27, 28%, really, not 30%. Right. Uh, So getting rid of the two tier, which is a demand of the union, and all the unions here over the past year that have walked out or had negotiations are all stuck with two tier and they've chipped away at the two tier. Teamsters UPS chipped away at the two tier, uh, but it still exists. Um, And, you know, it's a a big issue. It not only. uh, means means the company can take back some of its payments, uh, but it kind of splits the union into the haves and have-nots, first and second class worker citizens here. And it uh, tends to uh, pit one group, the younger workers, against the older workers in various ways. So it's, it's a bad thing, two-tier. Uh, two-tier is a, is a product of a neoliberal era here in, in industrial policy. Uh, particularly in manufacturing, but elsewhere too, uh, it's become pretty much uh, ingrained, you know, in in uh, company practices here, wage practices. So getting rid of it is important. Well, you know, you can get rid of it altogether. You know, eliminate tier, put everybody in the first tier. Uh, that means a, a lot of. Uh, uh, the money in the settlement goes to the younger workers because they get a bigger bump than the average, right? uh, Or you can over time close the gap. In other words, uh, shorten the progressions in the tier two so they uh, approach. Uh, you know, maybe you reach the top after four years, and uh, in, instead of six. Um, uh, and or uh, give a little bit more in the start wage uh, you know the start wage is only $18 an hour in the auto companies i mean that's amazing $18 an hour i mean california you're going to be able to get 20 an hour for flipping burgers and uh, you know auto workers start in tier 2 at $18 and they top off at $32 32 think about that $32 you know, that's less than fifty thousand dollars a year. Try to live on a family of four in income in a big city, you know or on the coasts, uh, even at the top wage of and salary annual of fifty thousand or less a year. Try it. Impossible. You know And the workers have gone back in the auto plants nineteen percent in real wage reductions since their last contract in twenty nineteen. And the companies have got the CEOs of these companies have got forty percent raise since 2019, and I bet you that's that's a, a, a lowball figure, not counting uh, their stock options. So, you know, the workers really deserve much better. And by the way, you know, you you hear the business media and the politicians on the Republican side in particular saying, oh, you know, you give workers 30 percent, well, the cost of your car is going to go way up. Well, the fact is, according to auto industry analysts who've reported it publicly on Bloomberg News this past week, that wage costs are only, get this, 10 percent of the price of a car. Ten percent. Industry analysts say 10%. Well, they may raise their prices using the strike and the wage settlement as an excuse, but it's not justified. It won't be justified. All these companies do that. They blame the union for the price increase, but they use the the negotiation strike as an excuse to tack on the price. Because whether it's justified or not, they say it is, and they get away with it. Okay, uh, another thing about the UAW negotiations: you got Trump and Biden going to the picket line. Let's talk about that. First of all, Trump goes to a non-union place. He didn't actually go to a picket line. I mean, he's a he's a damn Republican billionaire. I mean, he's not going to support labor in any sense of the word. But he's going to pander to workers. He's going to blame the Democrats. He's going to pander to them. He's going to try to make hay because you know a lot of these. These walkouts, now especially with 43, are in swing states. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it may be—you know how close some of these swing states' votes were, right? Minnesota and, and Pennsylvania and Michigan in particular, Wisconsin. Oh, these, these were close votes. Well, you know, the Trump is playing, pandering to— uh, uh, the workers in those states. And, but I mean, he's doing I'm not saying what he would do for them. Uh, in fact, you know, I think one of his statements was that, uh, oh, your strike uh, won't make any difference because the uh, uh, auto uh, companies are going to uh, replace internal combustion engines with uh, EV electric vehicles and they need fewer parts and therefore fewer workers and you guys are going to get laid off. So you're striking for nothing uh, I mean, that's the argument. Well, that's a company argument, you know? Uh, so Biden goes on the picket line and he's walking the picket line and he's giving his uh, uh, speech, you know. You know, oh, my dad was a union guy. We sat around our table, you know, and the unions created the weekend and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Which is true, but. He's not going to do anything either. He's there to talk to talk, but he won't walk the walk. He could because he's sitting on tens of billions of dollars of direct subsidies, grants. They call them loans, but they're really grants to the auto companies to build his, their EV plants in the U.S. Yeah, he's going to pay for them or much of the cost of them. And the company's made $250 billion here over the last 10 years. They're giving their shareholders $80 billion in stock buybacks and dividend payouts. They're giving their CEOs 40% raise, right? And, of course, they're going to grab the subsidies paid for by the American taxpayer in tens of billions of dollars. Well, Biden could... uh, Say, hey, you know, you settle with the union for 40%, 36%, whatever, or, you know, you're not going to get your EV uh, freebie. But he's not going to do that. No. Talk the talk. They never walk. Okay. But, you know, back to Trump's remark, there is some truth to the fact uh, that EV— Electric vehicle plants use fewer parts, and therefore, in the long run, they're going to need fewer workers. They'll hire initially in these new plants, uh, but then they're going to lay off at, at the old old plants as EV electric vehicles displace uh, combustion vehicles. So third, fourth, fifth year of the contract, uh, you will see job losses. There's some truth to that. And... Really, what that means, it's like the two-tier system where companies take back, you know, some of the wages they've agreed to pay, uh, you know, give with one hand, take take away with the left. Uh, well, the same thing with electric vehicles. How much of wage costs are they going to save by the end of the fifty-year agreement? Is an interesting question. Uh, by laying off workers, uh, well, they'll save. They'll save exactly. How much? We don't know. So if you keep, you know, two-tier and you have EVs, 30% is not going to be 30%. But, you know, the workers got to fight the fight now for what they can get. Uh, They can't be concerned about what might happen later, uh, except, of course, in the case of uh, cost of living adjustment. Uh, I mean, they have to be concerned about inflation later. And, yeah, they got to be concerned about— uh, what technology is going to do to their jobs, but the you know the union has very unions have very little leverage over uh, preventing technology uh, from uh, destroying their jobs. The history uh, you know has been one of technology, uh, capitalist technology, uh, uh, destroying jobs and replacing jobs with uh, with machinery, whether it's hardware machinery or software machines like AI. Yeah. So that leads us into uh, uh, the next uh, issue here, and that's the writer's strike. You know, We're talking about AI here, right? Um, 11,000 uh, writers uh, uh, went back to work here after almost four months. I think it was they were out. Uh, the key issues were... Are they going to get paid something for TV reruns? The writers are, uh, you know, script writers. We're talking about TV, TV writers, and um, uh, movie writers, mostly commercials and so forth, right? Okay. Uh, so, you know, they weren't getting uh, uh, full pay here for all these residuals. You know, it's kind of like a nostalgic uh, comeback here. A lot of these sitcoms of the 70s and 80s are returning. Uh, because the writing was better <laughs> back then anyway. Uh, and um, they weren't getting paid for it. Okay, so now uh, they did win two uh, percent residuals uh, that was a uh, a plus for getting them back. You know, companies often do that. When they're ready to uh, settle. Uh, and they think the workers are are kind of exhausted, uh, they'll throw some money at the settlement. They'll throw in what's called a sweetener, you know, and they'll throw a little bit of money uh, so the workers feel, well, we got something, let's go back, right? Uh, And and that's what the the movie companies did here. We're talking about big conglomerates, you know, that own these TV uh, uh, stations and sitcoms and content development, you know. Uh, Sony and MGM and all those, right? They're they're the company players here. Uh, So the writers are going back. Uh, Another key demand was artificial intelligence. They wanted a voice and even a veto if they could, but at least a voice in determining how much AI would be used in writing scripts. Now, What is AI? What is artificial intelligence? People are kind of confused. You know, they think it's robots. No, no. AI is software machines, right? Software machines. uh, That right now, the issue is generative AI, software machines uh, that use natural language, i.e. English or any other language, right? And uh, the more data that these software machines have, uh, the smarter they are and the better they are and the more like human speech uh, they become. The more data, put more data into the software machine and uh, it sounds more like a human being, right? Uh, And of course, uh, AI is just devastating uh, all the customer service jobs, right? Uh, You're going to be talking... uh, to a, a machine that sounds like a, 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 a human service worker when you got an issue, right? But it's got to be a machine. Uh, you're not going to do a, a, a keyboard chat bot kind of a thing. You're going to be talking to a talking bot, right? Uh, Goldman Sachs uh, research has uh, put out a report last year that said are going to lose 130 million jobs. Think about that. Hundred thirty million jobs to AI by twenty thirty. Well, you know, if it's about natural language and talking, it's about natural language writing, and uh, that means uh, AI is going to do the writing for the scripts, and that means uh, writers have a lot of job. Of course, this won't happen overnight. It'll be in stages, right? Uh, but you're going to have software machines, AI machines, writing scripts. And they're going to use past scripts uh, as the database uh, that was done by real writers. And so how are the writers going to get uh, compensated for that? Right? Are they going to get compensated? Or do company say, no, you know, this is new content, you know, you're not involved. Well, that's not totally true. The database is there, right? By the way, you know, all of you are feeding data and me all the time into these big databases that the big four tech companies, Microsoft, Google, and so forth, have developed. Yeah, you are giving your money. You are giving your content to these big companies for free. Yeah, they're stealing it from you all the time to build their database, right? Well, in the writer's strike, it was, you know, AI's AI going to use the database of existing scripts here uh, to uh, rewrite the new, new scripts, right? Uh, now, as it turns out, uh, the union didn't get any any real voice in that whole issue here. All they got, as I understand, you know, the full terms of this contract is not uh, communicated to the public yet, but I, from what the, some of the reports are, um, all they got was an agreement with the companies that they would not um, attribute authorship credits, in other words, uh, to an AI written script. It would not appear that they… Yeah, well, that has to do with copyright you know, issues here. Uh, so the dumb machines, not so dumb anymore, um, can't be authors, right? Can't be recognized as authors, right? Well, what this means is you're going to get some pretty bland written scripts. If all you're doing is writing based on past writing, there's not a lot of creativity there. But you know, capitalism does not like creativity. They like to copy things uh, that have been already successful, right? So we're going to get copies and copies of stuff, and that's what's profitable that sound and what do they do uh the companies the record companies or whatever uh, they just keep producing that same sound until you get tired of it right and then we go to a, another uh source and uh creative source and that creative source uh you know uh gives a new sound and people like it. And well, you know, then the money bags jump on it and they reproduce the sound into an item. And, uh, you know, the same with performers, right? I mean, uh, all these performers from Madonna to Beyonce are all the same, right? Okay, so uh, we're going to get a lot of bland creativity here, if you can call it that, uh, not original creativity, uh, but copy. Copy capitalism likes copy because it sells, right? Okay, so um, the writers didn't didn't win anything to speak of in terms of their demands on on AI displacing their jobs. Now, some on the left are saying, "Oh, they caved in," you know. Look, you know, four months of a strike. I mean, you fought the fight. Sometimes you don't win. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you you can't fault the writers for after four months. I'm sure they're exhausted. I'm sure they don't have much of a strike fund uh, going back to work. You can't fault them for that. Right. Uh, now, this will have a, an impact on the uh, actors strike. You know, the writers, about 11,000 of them went back. Uh, and what we got is the actors strike, about 100,000. Uh, not just actors, but you know all the support, the backroom, you know the the other workers, the sets, and so forth. Um, they're all part of uh, of SAG-AFTRA. Uh, that's a acronym. S A G A F T R A. That's the union for the actors. SAG-AFTRA. Uh, and now uh, reportedly, they're going back to the bargaining table next Monday. Uh, so we'll see what happens. But, you know, AI is, is an issue there as well. Maybe not as imminent uh, as it is for writers, but uh, a key issue there as well. Um, AI will replace real human actors at some point. You know, these actors will be uh visual-generated uh, facsimiles of actors. I mean, we've already seen some of the early phases of this. You know, remember that film about um, uh, the Greek, Greek battle at Thermopylae, right? It was called the 300, you know? It was kind of like animation overlaid upon real actors' faces and so forth, you know? Uh, I mean, that that's the early version of of what will happen and i've seen attempts to create full movies now world war ii movies with the uh, uh, actor animation you know uh, but where you're really going to see it penetrate AI penetrate is uh, when uh, using uh, only voices of actors right and the voices can be replicated by AI you speak and Enough into an AI software machine, and it knows the intonation and and how you speak, and it can reproduce your voice, you know, almost perfectly. The more you speak, and if you're speaking all over the web like I am, uh, you know, at some point, uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, somebody, you know, who doesn't like what I have to say is going to uh, have me, my, my uh, AI bot say. <laughs> something, and it's not really me, you know? And uh, then they go after you, and then you got to have to uh, prove that, I didn't say that, you know, somebody deep fake, use my voice. Uh, Well, that's what AI uh, is leading to, Uh, and not just on the voice, but on, on faces eventually as well, right? If you are seen in interviews a lot, um, AI will reproduce your face, uh, and it won't look like animation, it'll look like you, right? Uh, using actors' voices in commercials will be uh, also an early penetration here. Um, uh, you know, Just think of uh, uh, James Earl Jones, uh, Darth Vader, right? Well, you don't need uh, James Earl Jones uh, for future Darth Vaders because the AI has got his voice down, and... Uh, it will be used for, you know, any any uh, uh, script here, uh, movie script, and his voice in the future. Well, it's an issue for the actors as well, and we'll see uh, what happens. But they've been out two months, you know, not a small amount of time, uh, and they're they're going back to the bargaining table now that the uh, writers have have. Uh, have gone back to work. I'm sure that the companies uh, called, okay, let's go back to the table just to see uh, how um, how discouraged the actors' union negotiators might be with uh, the uh, writers going back to see how far they can uh, maybe push uh, the actors into a settlement. Right? Uh, AI is a real danger for jobs, as I as I quoted the Goldman Sachs. Uh, Projection here, uh, and we, we're seeing now all these phony government industry conferences about oh the dangers of AI. Oh, we got to—they're uh, not going to do a damn thing, you know. There's too much money to be made, and the an AI train has left the station, and they're not going to call it back. And uh, too much money to be made because you know if you lay off workers and you have a machine that's reproduces their voice or their face, right? Well, it's 24-7. You know, those machines, the software machines, uh, uh, don't take lunch breaks, and uh, they don't get sick, and you don't pay them pensions, etc. Big savings for companies. That's why they're all rushing to implement AI in some way or form. Now it's generative AI generative AI natural language processing AI um, but uh, you know where AI is going is well beyond that and we'll see even further advancements before 2030 okay uh, that's my uh, overview of these important labor struggles going on here. Uh, And uh, the key question, as I wrote on my blog in an article, you know, about the the UAW strike is at the end of uh, concession bargaining, which began back in the late 70s, which is a good segue into the next topic of Jimmy Carter. Right. Let's talk about Jimmy Carter. Uh, As I said, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter is on his last legs here. he turns 99 tomorrow. There's going to be a big celebration. And when he f- passes away, uh, there will be a big hype about, oh, all the great things Jimmy Carter did. Oh, you know, his legacy, you know. And they'll talk a lot about habitats for humanity. You know, he goes and he hammers a nail and they get a nice photo op. And, you know, he's, he's, they've been doing this for decades now uh And uh, they'll they'll emphasize his, uh, his post-presidential activity, which is much better than what he did as president. Uh, he was a dis- disastrous president, and I'll explain why. okay? Uh, when Jimmy Carter came in office in 76, you know the. US economy was in shatters and uh, US uh, foreign policy was in retreat. Everywhere, the 1970s was a uh, economic crisis of capitalism. You know, we had uh, uh, in the early 70s uh, we had that, uh, the first bout of uh, of uh, energy inflation, uh, and uh, then we had a, the worst recession, 73-75, since the Great Depression. Right, we had wage freeze—a wage freeze uh, by Nixon in August of '71, right, where he rolled back to five and a half percent gains that unions were winning in strikes that they were winning of twenty-five percent. Yeah, um, back then in '70, '70, '71, the greatest strike uh, uh, wave in U.S. history, believe it or not. Yeah, unions were winning. Get this wage gains at twenty five percent in the first year of a three-year agreement twenty five percent plus benefits in the second third year think about that you know and I'm, I'm talking about the auto workers uh, and construction workers and uh, teamsters and longshore workers they're all making big gains the companies couldn't stop them couldn't stop them and they were doing it, by the way, like they're trying to do now, to make up for the inflation of the '60s, where they didn't really strike because they didn't want to embarrass their Democrat Party friends. So when Nixon gets in office, oh, well, it's time to recoup. You know what we were losing on the Democrats here. The leaders did this, right? Leaders of the unions don't embarrass the Democrats. A big strategic problem with American unions: their dependency. Uh, in the relationship with the Democrat Party. Uh, But when Nixon came in office, they let loose. And the companies couldn't stop them. And there were great gains. And that's why Nixon stepped in and froze wages for 90 days and then imposed 5.5% maximum that they could negotiate and collect a bargain agreement. So he rolled back the 25% to 5.5%. Yeah. And they said there were uh, on prices, there were controls, but that was phony. There were no real price controls. And in fact, the guys who ran the price commission uh, in 71 to 73. Uh, admitted, I think it was 78, they admitted, I forget the names of these guys, that, oh, you know, uh, we we were just faking price controls. It was really about zapping labor. That's a quote. They say, we zapped labor. (laughs) Yeah, with the wage freeze. Why do I know about this? Because I did my PhD thesis on it, on the Nixon wage price controls. So I know it. You want to read 500 pages of that? You know? Go go look up the thesis dissertation somewhere, uh, but I did talk about it in the introduction to my first book called "The War at Home: The Corporate Offenses from Reagan to Bush." Uh, anyway, uh, to get back to uh, Jimmy right. Carter here, right? Uh, the the U.S. They, they they couldn't stop labor, union labor, uh, and uh, then we had the great. Uh, recession of 73 to 75 and then Carter comes off of 76 did he do was he able to tame inflation was he able to get the economy going uh, what about workers uh, who didn't get raises during the, uh, the great Recession after the wage controls what about them how did they do right uh, under Carter not so good not so good. Uh, he really didn't tame inflation. It came back roaring back in '79. Right, uh, workers' wages uh, never really uh, recovered after the double whammy of the of the wage freeze and the recession of '73. Um, so folks didn't fare that well uh, under Jimmy Carter in terms of uh, of incomes. Uh, but you got to understand Jimmy Carter's. Legacy economically and politically is as follows Jimmy Carter was uh, the dress rehearsal for neoliberalism that was introduced with a vengeance by Ronald Reagan once Ronald Reagan got in office in '81. With a vengeance, yeah, Jimmy Carter, uh, in initiated what was called concession bargaining for labor that devastated it for the next four decades and continues to. Uh, Neoliberal industrial policy begins with the crisis strike in 1979. That was the first concession bargaining event. And that concession occurred because Jimmy Carter intervened in the negotiations on the invitation of the UAW president Doug Fraser at the time, and they imposed on the Chrysler workers big concessions, right? right. And uh, that was the template for concession bargaining in manufacturing that followed, as I said, with a vengeance uh, under under Ronald Reagan, right? the crisis strike, launch of neoliberalism in industrial policy. Neoliberalism has four policy elements, industrial policy, uh, monetary policy, i.e. Federal Reserve interest rate policy, fiscal policy, i.e. social program spending, uh, defense war spending, and debts and deficit, and external policy, which is about uh, uh, trade, trade balance, currency, etc. Now, under Carter, we also got uh, the deregulation and the compression of wages in trucking and airlines. Now, trucking and airlines, these were new laws passed under Carter in 79 and 80. Uh, deregulation uh, meant that uh, new startups could come into these industries, trucking and airlines, and they came in came in with... Uh, uh, lower wages and uh, they caused wages to decline in throughout the trucking and airline industry. you know the argument was, oh, competition is good, you know Well competition meant that uh, companies uh, uh, no longer could uh, raise prices and and raise wages, right? Uh, the pressure was to reduce wages. These new c- trucking companies came in and forced the existing companies to lower their wages as well. Uh, and of course, they were non-union uh, trucking companies, so you know it meant uh, loss loss of jobs for the Teamsters and other uh, airlines, right? Uh, so that's a legacy. The wage compression in transportation uh, industry is is a legacy. You know, you you drive down wages in manufacturing, as Reagan did, uh, by uh, promoting offshoring, right? Uh, Give tax cuts to big corporations to move their plants, uh, first to the American South, where it's non-union, then to Mexico, then to China, and wherever. And that's uh, what Reagan is noted for, Reagan neoliberalism. But uh, the deregulation of transport is really part of the legacy of uh, Jimmy Carter. Also part of the economic legacy is uh, uh, inflation, Uh, right? Inflation uh, was over 10%. And what did Carter do? Uh, He changed his uh, uh, central bank chair uh, to this guy Volcker, and Volcker raised interest rates to 18%. Well, that shut shut down uh, construction and the housing industry and manufacturing and autos and so forth, Uh, and that caused uh, uh, great harm, right? Uh, And then Reagan, of course, uh, uh, followed suit uh, when when he got in office, did that again. Uh, Jimmy Carter's 1978 tax legislation became a template uh, for Ronald Reagan uh, to cut, to cut business taxes and raise taxes on uh, payroll taxes and so forth on workers, right? Uh, under Jimmy Carter, efforts by the unions to uh, to then, well, particularly construction unions, to deal with the anti-union offensive by construction firms uh, to give them uh, the right to picket, Right. Uh, the courts had previously said, oh, you can only have three pickets to a gate, right? You can't have mass picketing, which the unions always used to do before. Uh, and uh, the picketing bill uh, failed under Carter, right? Uh, the Equal Rights Amendment failed. He didn't give it enough push. Um, these are all the economic legacies of Jimmy Carter. But the political legacies are even even worse, you know, uh, Jimmy Carter, after the first two years, seventy-seven, seventy-eight, made a definite shift to the right in all his policies, uh, whether it was uh, economic policies or political policies, uh, and and the reverberations of some of these political uh, failures under Carter are still being felt today. What are they? Well. Afghanistan and the whole Middle East, for one. I think I've said on this this uh, show several months ago in a show where I talked about uh, Afghanistan and, and Ukraine, you can't separate Afghanistan and Ukraine. Well, how's that? Well, Joe Biden, if you remember, in August of 21, After being in office only seven or eight months, right, pulled out of Afghanistan, right? Lock, stock, and barrel, helter skelter, right? Just pulled everything out. Why did did he do that? Well, he was clearing the deck to go into Ukraine. We've talked about the origin of the war in Ukraine, and a good part of it was uh, this plan that the U.S. had since 2016. uh, to uh, precipitate a conflict in in U- Ukraine, to lure the Russians into uh, military action uh, in Ukraine uh, as a as a way of uh, generating a proxy war, right? And this was a plan. This was a plan of <laughs> the U.S. government in 2016. It was put on the shelf when Trump got in, but as soon as uh, Biden got an office. It was dusted off, and and the implementation began within months, couple months of of uh, Biden taking office. And uh, but they had to clear the deck in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. they couldn't couldn't have the war going and all the money spending on it in Afghanistan. They wanted to shift the money and shift the war uh, to Ukraine. So Joe Biden pulls out of Afghanistan in August, held the skelter, right? And immediately uh, mm-hmm. begins encouraging, uh, Ukraine and Zelensky and the government there to start talking about oh we're gonna, we we're, we're going to join NATO and and uh, mm-hmm. Biden Biden led him, led him to believe that that was a, a sooner than later possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, you know, bringing Ukraine into NATO was uh, was announced way back in 2008 by George W. Bush. That was the plan, right, to bring it into NATO, knowing full well that uh, bringing Ukraine to NATO was a red line, uh, that the Russians uh, would would not uh, allow to happen without a response, right? And the war in Ukraine now is really a, a lot about that. It's about Russian security uh, or lack there. If, anyway, in late 21, Biden refused to talk to the, uh, Putin and the Russians. The R- Russians and the, uh, were asking the US, let's sit down and talk about this. They could see what was happening. Um, and uh, in December of 2021, the U.S. took a public position, and, and that was that. Okay, so what does this have to do with Jimmy Carter? Well, Afghanistan has to do with Ukraine, as I just explained, and Jimmy Carter has to do with Afghanistan. How? Well, it was in the summer of 1979, Carter's still in office. His national security advisor is the big new Brzezinski, an emigre from Eastern Europe by way of Canada, who uh, uh, in became a, a fair haired boy of the uh, foreign policy establishment uh, in the US, you know, foreign policy uh, um, magazine there. He was from a position in Harvard and so forth. And uh, he became the, uh, the uh, NSA advisor to Carter. So this guy Zbigniew comes to Carter in July of 79, and he tells them, uh, let's create uh, a disruption, a regime change here in Afghanistan. Afghanistan at the time had just had, uh, a year before I think it was, its own revolution. And the secular government came to power. A general in Afghanistan, uh, and uh, Carter and and Brzezinski said, "Let's let's disrupt that government, and maybe we can lure the USSR, the Soviets, into Afghanistan, and then we'll fight a proxy war. You know, we'll give Stinger missiles and everything to the to the peasants, and uh, we'll, we'll fight a proxy war, and we'll debilitate the, the USSR." Its economy and and its government in the process, in a long war. Uh, well, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the U.S. Uh, six months before the Russian Russians were uh, Russians, then USSR were asked asked to come into Afghanistan by the government there, um, the secular government in Afghanistan. Uh, the U.S. began destabilizing it. And then uh, they followed, uh, you know, the prediction, and they called in the Soviets, and we know the history of that. Well, that set off a whole long history of U.S. problems, well, not so much problems, uh, in Afghanistan, you know, which culminates uh, in 2001, uh, Afghanistan, the Afghans uh, harbor uh, uh, bin Laden, right, Uh, or at least that's what they thought. And that was used. Uh, the U.S. had to strike somebody after 9/11, uh, so they thought Bin Laden was in Afghanistan, so they st- struck Afghanistan, right? As it turned out, Bin Laden was in Pakistan. He wasn't in <laughs> Afghanistan, uh, but the U.S. wanted uh, uh, the Afghans to return Bin Laden, uh, uh, which, I, as I understand historically, they offered to do. But you know that. Uh, train had left the station under George W. Bush, and the U.S. invaded uh, Afghanistan. 9/11, when actually the 9/11 uh, perpetrators were all Saudis. Yeah, the, these guys running, you know, these these airplanes that crashed the Twin Towers and Pentagon and elsewhere. Uh, I think 19 out of the 21 of them were Saudi nationals. Yeah, they weren't Afghans. Right, they weren't even bin Laden. Uh, Okay, so what we've got here is uh, the whole start of our Middle East quagmire uh, begins with Jimmy Carter, that was his legacy to set off the firestorm in the Middle East by disrupting uh, the government uh, that Brzezinski proposed this how do we know this well Brzezinski admitted it he writes about it in his 1990s memoir and uh, he even went on <clears throat> and did interviews where he said he did he and Carter did this. so you know a lot of the legacy of problems in the Middle East go to Jimmy Carter right? Iran our problems with Iran began with Jimmy Carter as well. Under his regime, that's part of his legacy too. Especially uh, that military debacle, you know, where he sent helicopters and aircraft uh, flying, flying from the, the Gulf uh, into uh, over Iranian land. Supposedly, going to rescue uh, the American hostages in Tehran, right? And of course, that was a total debacle. Planes were shot down. They never even reached Tehran. They had to turn back, Uh, and so our problems with Iran, you know, a lot of them are Jimmy Carter. You know, Jimmy Carter's legacy. Again, a lot of the problems in the Middle East, whether it be Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever, uh, you know, go back to the foreign policy of Jimmy Carter, and that's his historic political legacy. As well as a, a a domestic shift to the right here after seventy eight first two years uh, that began be, began to introduce or served as the dress rehearsal the template for neoliberalism uh, that uh, Ronald Reagan just ran with once he got elected you see yeah. Well, you know, I mean, neoliberalism doesn't originate in the mind of Jimmy Carter. It originates really with the formation of what was called the Business Council at the time in the late '70s and the Business Roundtable. Who were they? They were the hundred biggest U.S. corporation CEOs. They became the members of the new Business Council, which became the big lobbying and other key capitalist, U.S. capitalist policy originating uh, source. Uh, Again, this was formed, the Business Council was formed in the 70s in response to uh, the surge in the power of labor and social movements. Right? How are we going to deal with that? Uh, Capitalists were saying, and they formed the Business Council, and uh, they became... um, much more influential within government uh, as a result, lobbying and so forth, campaign contributions and so forth. That's where it all begins with the Business Council, uh, which is the preeminent capitalist organization, policy organization in the U.S., right? And I think the Chambers of Commerce have joined it, and National Social Manufacture. It is the uh, locus of capitalist uh, policy and influence, on uh, elected government, right? Uh, there are others as well, but uh, that's the. Those are the big boys, right? Uh, and uh, it's their recommendations and their pressure on Carter that pushed him uh, to move to the right. Whether it was intervening in strikes, whether it was deregulating industry, right? Whether it was uh, shifting taxes, um, all of that, and. Uh, I'm not sure what the uh, the role was uh, of the business council in, in going into Afghanistan and Iran policy and so forth. Um, connections are probably less obvious because I don't think they wrote position papers and recommending politicians uh, to act uh, uh, eventually the way uh, uh his foreign policy, Carter's foreign policy was. And Carter ends up uh, his his one year in office with this, this historic speech called the malaise speech where he blames American citizens and uh, people for this malaise going on in the culture, you know, which was a way of kind of uh, – diverting attention uh, from his own failures. And uh, we're going to find out here, you know, when he finally uh, passes away, what this is all about. But you won't hear that.